0: Chapter 3, verses 1-15, through that covers the whole chapter, and it's on page 765 if you would like to use a church Bible, it should be on your pew near you. Um, before we read the passage, a few moments ago, uh, Jessica Fisher came and she read to us um, out of Romans 8, <clears throat> and uh, these verses as we listen to them are a great source of comfort And encouragement to all Christians, and all of them are equally important, and they all just go together as important. But particularly, verse 31 stands out at us. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? That is an incredible word to us. But in our passage today, Amos comes into the towns and the cities of Israel, and he proclaims the, the foreboding mirror image of this passage. And basically, he's saying, if God is against us, whatever shall we do? So let's read and hear from the Word of God, Amos chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? It is, a, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people not afraid? Does disaster come to a city Unless the Lord has done it. For the Lord does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, And the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, says the Lord God, and adversity shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord. As the shepherd rescues from the mouth the lion, uh, two, uh, the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. Then on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. This is the reading of God's holy word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this word. Um, Much of it um, is frightening. As well it is meant to be. It is meant to be a roar. And so Lord, we as your people need to hear this roar. We need to understand it. We need to comprehend it. That we would be called to live in a right way. And so Father... Work it in our hearts to know and to understand and to act on what we hear this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now between the, uh, the, the words, and some of you will recognize these words, between don't leave home without it. Anybody recognize that? Don't leave home without it. And maybe currently you've heard the new one, don't live life without it. American Express has had these little taglines, and one of my favorites is from the 80s. And it is, membership has its privileges. I love that, don't you? If you carry that card, membership has its privileges. This is great. Well, membership can have its privileges, but according to brand strategist, and I love that, a brand strategist, uh, brand strategist uh, Jeremy Miller, membership is waning in the United States. He notes that across North America, leaders of professional associations and nonprofits are facing a seismic shift. Membership rates are declining. Event pr- participation is waning. Recruiting new members is getting harder and harder. He says the idea of membership is being challenged. Pundits are arguing that the membership model is dead and people don't want to pay dues to belong to an organization any longer. These are troubling times for associations and nonprofits. Perhaps the real seismic shift that Mr. Miller does not point out is the se- seismic shift of the growing desire for privilege, but not necessarily responsibility. And that is exactly what we have been seeing in Israel in the time of Amos, the prophet, this prophet from Tekoa, he He shows up on the scene in the middle of the 700s, and he, in 700 BC, and during the reign of Jeroboam the second, which was the, he was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, remember we're talking about the the, the United Kingdom of Israel was divided, and so you have Jeroboam the second in the northern part of Israel, and you have Uzziah in the southern kingdom of Judah. This again is a divided kingdom time and so uh, to uh, The prophet comes from the southern kingdom, he goes into the northern kingdom, and he's prophesying to Israel. And he's prophesying, proclaiming a message of judgment from the Lord who roars from Jerusalem. Now, he begins this, if you remember last week, by speaking to the nations all around him. So he, he starts out that way. I'm going to talk to their, the nations, I'm going to move into Judah, and then I'm going to proclaim the message of judgment to you, Israel. And so that's where we pick up today. So we're going we're to gonna kind of go through the text a little bit, because there's all kinds of jewels and things here to wrestle with. And then at the end, we'll make some application. And we may make some application along the way, but specifically at the end. And so we're going to look at two things. We're going to look, first of all, at privilege carries responsibility. Privilege carries responsibility. And then secondly, God's judgment is seriously, seriously comprehensive. Okay? So, first of all, privilege carries responsibility. As we look at verses 1-8, through I want you to think, if you will, for a moment about the privileges of being a child of God. Think about that just for a moment. Uh, There is sonship instead of slavery. There is security. There is intimacy. And we can cry out to God, Abba, Father, because He's our Father. Uh, There is also assurance from the Holy Spirit that we are His children. We have the Holy Spirit, the down payment. For our inheritance. And speaking of that, we have a great, great, great inheritance that we all share in. It would be like, if you think about it, it would be like having this rich, rich, rich kingdom-owning family member who died and left it to like a hundred children or a hundred descendants. But there's plenty to go around. Our God is that great. We share in a few other privileges that the Scriptures make certain, but some often balk at these at worst and ignore them at best. And the first privilege that I would say that also is about being a child of God is this, it's suffering. We don't like to talk about that and especially TV preachers never want to talk about that, do they? But it tells us plainly in the Scriptures that we share in His sufferings. You see that in Romans 8. Romans 8. Verse 17, before what we read this morning, Christians will suffer not simply in the pains of this world that all people face, because all people face a certain amount of suffering for sure, but specifically because they are brothers and sisters of Christ. Okay? Now, secondly, there's another privilege, the privilege of discipline. A good and loving father always disciplines his children. When parents discipline a child, they allow or introduce a milder form of pain in order to teach or mature a child away from the behavior that will lead them to far greater pain later. Now, however, and and think about this, however, it is a painful privilege to be put through discipline by the most loving father of the universe. Think about that. So in the text, Amos reminds Israel whose they were. You belong to God. And in verses 1 through 2, we see that out of all the people of the earth, they were his. He had rescued them from Egypt. He had taken them out of slavery. He had given them the law, the the, the family guidelines, if you will, and how to live. I've rescued you. You're my children. Let me tell you how to live. So he gives them the law. He gives them this great inheritance of the land. And he provided all of their needs and more than all these things. The text makes clear that he knew them intimately. He knew them closely. They are the only family of the earth. The only people that he had established such a relationship with. That is incredible. Consequently, the next words he says are quite remarkable. So have all that in mind. You're my people. I've given you all these things. I'm taking care of you. I love you intimately. There's no one else but you. Therefore, I will punish you. Therefore, I will punish you. The word for punish is also translated visit. And it occurs several times in key contexts In Genesis 50, 24 through 25, in his, at his, or I should say, at his deathbed, Joseph uses this word to assure his family that God will visit them and take them to the promised land. These words are also repeated in Exodus 13 when Israel leaves Egypt. However, Here, as one commentator puts it, the word visit is turned on its head. God is going to reverse the exodus and send His people into exile. This, of course, does not mean that God reverses His covenant, but it is judgment within the covenant which removes those who claim to belong but do not, and from which the chastened remnant emerged purged and refined. The privilege of being a child of God carries with it a responsibility to be a part of the family, to bear the family resemblance in abiding by the family guidelines. So we must go back into the Word to remember the giving of the great promises and the privileges of the covenant relationship that they had with God. In Deuteronomy 7, God says, listen to these words, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. And out of all peoples who are on the face of the earth, you are mine. But then in Deuteronomy 8, the next chapter, verses 19 and 20, he warns them of covenant curses. So you have the covenant blessings. This is what it is to be in God's family. Then you have the covenant curses. If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Israel was not living up to their responsibility as his people. Thus, God's integrity, understand that, God's integrity guaranteed punishment. But not before he gave them a warning. And thus, you hear the lion roar. They were off course. Their heads were cloudy. They, They couldn't even see how off course they were. Everything was going so well that they believed that they were right with God. So the Lord peppers them with questions to shake the fog. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? And so on we read. He is imploring through these questions, will you not hear me? Will you not understand? Will you not take that relationship, that covenant relationship with me seriously? I'm about to pounce hear me roar. So the question for us, as we hear this message from Amos to God's chosen people long ago, is how is it relevant to us today? How is it relevant to us today? Well, let me put it this way, and I, and I really want you to think about this, okay? I want you to think about this in terms of what I'm saying. Get this, in every time and in every place of this world since the fall, God has and is always bringing His kingdom. Because He promised it to Adam and Eve, remember? So since that time until now, He has been and He is bringing His kingdom. Now here's the thing that you have to understand when you read the Scriptures. With the kingdom comes both salvation and judgment. You have to understand that. Both salvation and judgment. Therefore, I submit to you that this message from Amos has been and always will be relevant to every time and age. Let me give you an example of why I believe that's true. I want you to put your finger in your Bible. I want you to flip over to the book of Revelation. I want you to flip over the book to Revelation chapter 3. And because I didn't write down the verse numbers here, I need to look them up myself. Starting in verse 14, chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Notice his words to the church in Laodicea around actually 15. Notice who he's speaking to the church here. This is what he says. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would either be, would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Do you think that sounds a little bit like Amos? Do you think? You have Old Testament Amos. You have New Testament Revelation. Very familiar messages from God to His people. Might these messages then be important at any time in the history and life of the church? Absolutely. That's why I personally believe it is absolutely ridiculous to look into these prophetic words in in the Old Testament or the New Testament when it comes to Revelation and try to figure out what the end times are all about. Because why? We're always in the end times. Since Jesus ascended into heaven, we're in the end times. And so this message was relevant to those who were living in this time, to those particular churches. And those same messages that are written in the book of Revelation could be said to us as His people. Do you see where I'm going with that? So this message is relevant. All of these passages point to the relevance of the coming of the kingdom of Christ in every age. And with that comes salvation and judgment. It always does. It always will until He comes again. So before we apply this message, let's look at our second point when the lion pounces. So the second point is The Lord's judgment is seriously comprehensive. And we'll kind of cover that in verses 9 through 15. If you look at uh, verses 9 through 15, now Amos begins to expand on the nature of the judgment that Israel is facing. So the first thing we see in the text is we see the irony of God summoning the old enemies of Israel to come and look upon the sinfulness of God's people. Isn't that ironic? The people that he said earlier, I'm going to judge, he is now calling and saying, look at the judgment I'm going to give to my people. I was reading one commentator and he said that um, uh, it's interesting here because what should be happening is is that Israel is so living to the glory of God that the people around them see it and they would go, wow, look at those people. Wow. Wow. Look at their God. But now what's happening is, is he's saying come and witness this and the people that are coming as from the nations are going wow. Look at those people. Oh, look at their God. That's what's going on here. Verse 10 says it all. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Normal and upright behavior eludes them. They just don't know how to do it. They're so caught up in their own world, their own minds. They do not know how to live normally. They would have loved Madonna's 80's classic, Material Girl. They could have sung that as a nation. Gross materialism, violence and defense of wealth and privilege. Oppression at its worst. And here again is the, this is the ironic thing. Not only are they looking on and seeing this, but they're called to be judges. So in other words, what he's saying is, is, you know how you've plundered to get your wealth? You know how you have oppressed people? You know how you have taken from them and abused them and enslaved them? These people are going to plunder you. The plunders are about to be plundered. So the second thing we see here in verse 12 is that the Lord draws a vivid comparison between a few fragments of a lamb rescued from the mouth of a lion and the tiny remnant of Israel that will survive. It's, it's kind of awful, really. Again, there's an irony here in the message. While the scraps of lamb are recognizable as a lamb... What remains of Israel is not only the evidence, is only the evidence of their luxury, uh, their laziness, their complacency. This is some rescue, isn't it? Will the judgment not be as comprehensive as that of a lion and his consumption of a sheep? The answer is yes. The surviving proof of what was once um, uh, consist of the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. And all that is that language is doing there is is it's summarizing their uh, extravagant, luxury, loving, their sensual and lazy, godless lifestyles. In other words, there just simply isn't anything worth saving. Do you see how the society of Israel has been broken down? Sleep, ease, luxuriousness, self-care, self-body care, indulgence. What happened to prayer? What happened to the Word of God? What happened to the family guidelines? The the dying of sin and self? uh, The the call to discipline? The battle for holiness? It's not there. All that will be left of the remnant is a couch. A corner of a bed. Nothing worth saving. Thirdly, we see in 13 through 15... Amos leans further into their empty religious lives as he turns to the altars which symbolize corporate worship. External forms of worship are worthless if personal and corporate holiness are lacking. And so here we see that the house of Jacob recalls as he uses those words, the Israelites should be thinking about their heritage, especially the promises to the patriarchs that established the ground on which the Lord would deal with His people. The covenant became the external structure of the eternal promise, providing the vehicle for obedience. Obedience to the covenantal stipulations marked one's participation in the promise. Israel as a nation had betrayed the covenant and therefore forfeited every right to its promised blessing. As a result of this disobedience, the altars of Bethel would be destroyed. Even the consequence of the horns being cut off exclaims that guilty Israel would no longer have a place of asylum because those horns were meant to be a picture of asylum as someone would grab on to them. Neither would the expensive homes that the people had offer them protection. If the very house of God is destroyed, don't ever think the Lord's saying that your home's not going to be destroyed. And if you run off from your home to your your mountain home, guess what? Your mountain home's going to be destroyed. And if you run off from your mountain home to your beach home, guess what? Your beach house is going to be destroyed. You have destroyed my house. I will destroy yours. That is the Word of the Lord. And so the question is this. If God be against us, Whatever shall we do? We will answer that question here in a moment as we seek to apply this, but let me run through some other things that I want you to think about in this passage. And some of them will mix together, okay? We have in this book already determined that this passage is relevant to us as is this book. It's relevant today. We have to understand that. It's not just written to those people of Amos' time in around 750 B.C., it is for us to hear and to receive and to listen to because the lion is roaring in our day too. So it's relevant. So as we think about that, in what way is it relevant? First, hear, know, and understand that the Lord God is holy and that He has determined that His people will leave, live in holiness, that they will walk in His ways. This is the God of the Scriptures. Some people don't hold on to the God of the Scriptures anymore. They they believe in a God and they'll say it's the God of the Bible, but it's it's an odd God. It's, It's a God of their own making. Understand that His love is a fierce love. His love is fierce for us. You know when the Scripture talks about I am a jealous God? He is a jealous God. That's who He is. It's like in our video this morning when Tim Keller's talking to these people about the differences in religious groups and who, who what is the right religion. Is it fair to say that there is one God and one way to eternal life? And he says, look, you have to understand. Have, have mercy on us. Have grace on us Christians because we're going by what The Bible reveals who Jesus is. Jesus came and He forgave sins. Jesus came and He healed people. Jesus came and He says, I am. He claimed to be God. And so all we can do is take that and say, this is who He is. All the other religions kind of come and say, I'm a prophet, let me point you toward God. But not the God of the Bible. And I'm going to tell you something. Trying to know the God of the Bible takes time. We don't like that, do we? What we want to do is go to the doctor and say, give me a pill and I'll take it and it'll all be good. It doesn't work that way with God. I mean, there are things that I look back on when I was a young man that I taught. I'm like, I cannot believe I taught that. Oh, Lord, have mercy on those people. I would pray, you know, for the youth groups that I taught. Lord, if there's anything here I'm going to say wrong, please wash it over with your blood. Because why? Not because I would I meant to be wrong, but because I know God better. I remember many years ago reading a story that John Piper wrote, and he talked about the tornadoes in the Midwest, and he said God took His hand and He stuck it down like that, and He rolled it across the Midwest. And to be honest with you, I was offended. It's like, how does he know what God's doing? But this passage tells us, doesn't it? And see, Dr. Piper had been studying the Bible a lot longer than I had at that point. And it says, does anything happen that it's not the hand of God? No. I thought wrongly about that. We have to understand that God is holy, that He is completely um, in charge of the universe. It's His. He made it. So this is who He is. And so we have to ask the questions, how am I living before Him? How is the church, not just here, but the church, living before Him? So secondly... I want us to think about this. We live by faith in Christ and not by it's my right. Okay? Let me say that again. We live by faith in Christ and not by it's my right. Do you know the difference? Do you know what I'm talking about there? Salvation is by faith in Christ alone. Not by identifying with a parent's faith or a church's faith or anyone else's faith. Because we, as people, have deceitful hearts and we can get off base. I mean, think about the mainline churches today. that They don't know God. I'm telling you, I'm not saying that individuals in those churches don't know God. I'm not even saying that individual pastors don't know God. But by and large, those churches have left the building. They've left the house of God. They've left Bethel. I don't know where they're going But it's not to the house of God. The issue here is is that they, the people of Israel, did not know the God that knew them anymore. The majority of them walked out of the relationship that He had invited them to. So the same questions apply. How am I living before Him? How is the church living before Him? One of the men I was reading talked about a a group exercise that he had been given. It's a Bible study, a small group Bible study. I'm really thinking about putting this into our our, uh, connect groups, I think, next year. The majority of them, um, uh, the questions go kind of like this. Imagine that you're in a conversation with God, and He asks you these questions. Tell me what happened to you. What happened to you? Did you let yourself down are you troubled by this? Have you forgiven yourself? Do you feel forgiven by me? Did you learn anything about your failure? I want you to think about those questions. Is that not speaking broadly of some that would call themselves Christians today? Are those not the questions that they ask? There's not one thing here. Have you sinned against a holy God? It's all about you and your feelings. Well, get how the questionnaire ends. God is now going to reassure you that He still loves you. And this is my favorite part. He accepts you as you are. And He calls you to a future that is part of His purpose. So grab it. And move on. Let me tell you something. God never accepts you as you are. He accepts you as you are in Christ. That's the key there. As you are in Christ. Now you can come as you are. But he accepts you in Christ. Again, does this do these questions sound like the God we've been reading about in the scriptures? I don't think so. I don't. All right, now third, and this one's gonna be hard for some of you people as we come to closing here. I'm going to, I've got one more after this, but this is getting, we're winding down. Third, I want you to quit worrying about the world and all its sinfulness. Okay? I want you to think about what I'm saying. I want you to quit worrying about the Lord and all its sinfulness. You have enough responsibility for you. (laughs) Okay? Uh, You need to be more urgently concerned about your walk before the Lord. You need to ask yourself the question, where do we find security here in this world? You need to ask yourself the question, whom do we trust in this world? Uh, I hear so much talk about, and I'm not saying it's not true, but you have to understand, you have to look at it. I look at things differently than I think the general culture does. I'm not going to do a survey and say, oh my gosh, the church is falling apart because I don't believe it ever will. I believe the church will always stand. And it may not be look like it did in the 1950s, whatever that really was, But the church of Christ must stand. And so what we're called to is to live as His people. No matter what the world around us is doing. Does that make sense? The world's going to go its way. The world is going to... We need to say, Lord, I will follow You. And we'll be obedient to You. We'll sharpen each other. We'll challenge each other. We'll love one another. We'll care for one another. And I'm not saying don't pray about the world and its sinfulness. I'm saying don't worry so much about it. Pray for it. Pray for yourself. Ask the Lord to help you. And trust Him. Now finally, and we get to our question. of Who can stand against the judgment of our holy God? Here's the answer. Only those who stand in Christ. And you know the answer. At least you ought to. (laughs) Only those who stand in Christ. For He first stood where we stand. He came to this planet as as a man, the man God. He came to this planet and He bore the wrath of God in our place. And so only in Him is anyone sheltered from the inevitable judgment. So if there's a tornado coming this way, the only place we have to hide is in Christ. If there is a war of magnitude which we've not seen before, the only place we have to hide is in Christ. Now here's the thing. There is a good reason to fear the Lord. There's a really good reason to fear the Lord. But He calls us to turn to Him. And even in this roar, even though He's saying, as soon as I'm finished roaring, I'm pouncing, He's still roaring at this point. There's grace here. And just as His integrity guarantees punishment, by the same token, His faithfulness to His covenant also guarantees a blessing on the righteous who live by faith. Now, we should never think that we might not be a part of that judgment. It'll refine us where it'll take other people out. For example, when when, uh, Judah goes into uh, captivity, where does Daniel go? Into captivity. But is he still God's man? Yes, he is. And that's the point. Yes, he is still God's man and so should his people be. Let him work it out. Trust Him. Turn to Him. There's a curious service held in an old church in the city of London on October 16th. Just a couple days, I mean, next week, every year. And it is preached at St. Catherine Church on Lindell Street. And it is called the Lion Sermon. Get that, the Lion Sermon. It has been preached every year in that same church for the last 250 years as of 1890. So I may have the dates there wrong. The story is this, that once in this uh, city, a very pious man called uh, Saint, uh, Sir John Gare, um, at one time he was the Lord Mayor of London, and Sir John happened to be in Asia at one period in his life, and he was with his caravan and he was traveling through a desert place and he found himself face to face with a lion. Now, I want to be honest with you. I've given a lot of thought to this. What would I do if I were face-to-face with a real lion that was roaring? What would I do? I have no idea because, you know, with bears in North Carolina, you can do different things to help protect yourself. But a lion, I have no idea. I don't know. Well, here's the thing. Sir John was alone. Everybody in his company that could help him had gone forward ahead of him. And Sir John knew that only God could deliver him. And so he thought of Daniel in the lion's den. Maybe he even thought of Paul who was going to meet the emperor who was as cruel as a lion, it was said. And so what he did is he fell on his knees before the beast, and he shut his eyes, and he cried to God to shut the mouth of the lion. The story goes that when he finished praying, he opened his eyes, the lion was gone. It was gone. So upon return of London, he set aside a sum of money to be given away in gifts to the poor and people every October 16th to secure that a sermon should be preached to tell the generations to come of how God heard his prayer and delivered him from the mouth of the lion. If Amos gave this message to the people of Israel, if Israel had only listened Bowed before him on their knees and said, Forgive me. The lion would have not only walked away, but would have encouraged them and grew them and helped them. You don't ever run from the lion of Judah, you run to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and mercy to us. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and understanding of your word. That uh, we would walk by faith in it. That we would trust you when we are wrestling with sin. Let us run to you. Uh, When we are tempted to believe other things, let us run to you. Father, um, not only that, but keep us running to you every day in terms of learning about you and knowing about you that we would grow in knowledge of what it is to have faith and what it is to understand the family life guidelines that we would please you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its encouragement. Thank you for your son who is not only the Lamb, the lion, but the lamb who was slain for our sins.